begin to this book of the Revelation to John of Jesus Christ this morning, we remember that uh, Christ reveals mysteries through his very word to us. I was thinking of another mystery as I was preparing our message. I was thinking of the mystery of marriage, right? Many of us would agree with the Apostle Paul at the end of uh, chapter 5 of Ephesians when he talks about the mystery uh, of marriage. And of course, he's talking about Christ in the church. But we know that uh, there are things in our lives when we walk into uh, uh, the world of being married that mysteries will be unveiled or maybe you've just thought of getting married and you've thought of it as a mystery when I do a wedding I often quote a pastor who tweeted this some years ago now who said in marriage two wills uh, become one and after the wedding you find out which one it is right right <laughs> Mysteries, mysteries become unveiled, right, in our life. And so much of that is true as we walk through life together. We even see mysteries in marriage being uh, unveiled back in Genesis 29 when Jacob uh, thought he was getting married to Rachel and he was literally surprised uh, when he woke up the next morning and the veil was no longer there, right? Only to discover, and you can go read it for yourself in Genesis, that it wasn't Rachel whom he married, but instead Leah, right? Surprise. Mysteries being unveiled, right? Today, the very first word of our epistle that we come to is in Greek, apocalyptico or apocalypia or apocalypse, right? Which literally means An unveiling. An unveiling. Jesus has come to unveil his mystery of grace and love to you and to me, to the church then and the church now. Last week we celebrated Easter and we continue to celebrate it throughout this season. There was another veil unveiled that day when Jesus died on the cross the veil that separated humanity from God was torn in two and we were ushered in by the grace of our Lord Jesus in the very presence of God there's an unveiling for us now in this letter And in this unveiling, it is a promise. A promise of salvation from Christ our Lord. And so as we dig into it together, we'll discover uh, some questions. Some wondering about what does that mean? 
And we won't be alone, but we'll find out that God is unveiling his mystery of grace to us. And you'll begin to see uh, right away as I unveil uh, some of my takes as I study the word as we come to it. For example, uh, one of those unveilings is uh, evident by why I have this series of the book of Revelation right after a series in uh, the gospel of John, uh, the I am statements of Jesus. You can tell right away that I think when this tells us that this revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John, you can tell right away who I think which John it was, right? Now, scholars debate and disagree about this because this John who introduces himself here in these first few verses doesn't give any other introduction except John. So it leads us to believe that it's a John that is well known by the church of his day. Well, it's not going to be John the Baptist because, you know, his head was no longer with him, right? He had entered life eternal. Could it be John Mark, the apostle that at one point was with Paul and ostensibly maybe with Asia Minor, though we find out that he went back to Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And we also discover that whenever they talk about John Mark with just one name, they usually call him Mark, not John. So that leaves us, uh, some have suggested uh, a guy named John the Elder. Uh, And some have questioned whether or not John the Elder is actually the same John that I'm talking about, John the son of Zebedee. Either way, I think this message, whichever John you prefer, he is telling a message not of his own, but a message of Jesus Christ. And it is a message that doesn't conflict with what we've just heard in the Gospel of John, Rather, there are many areas in which, as we'll hear today, it is no surprise they confirm and complement one another. As he writes this letter, received from Jesus to the seven churches. And as he writes to the seven churches, he tells us, who Jesus is once again. Now, there's been a history, as uh, one scholar will spend pages writing in his commentary on this text, of missing the mark when it comes to the book of Revelation. Even our own beloved Martin Luther, from whom we get our name, Lutheran, has counted and been counted among those who missed it. That author I mentioned put it like this. He said Luther's admission that he could not understand the apocalypse was the best thing he ever wrote concerning it. Luther would write in his introduction to the book of Revelation in 1522 that he thought Christ is neither taught or known in it. 
think you'll find as we listen to these, just these first eight verses, that he's wrong. For in this prologue, by the way, there's lots of different ways to organize and, and outline the book of Revelation. We're going to consider it the prologue, first eight verses, sometimes extended into the first three chapters, and then the the prophecy in chapters 4 through 20, beginning of 22, and then the epilogue. That's how we'll understand it for this particular journey through the book of Revelation. And these three sections, the first of which those first three chapters will spend the most time on, is a message to the seven churches, and really the whole letter is. And he begins with the pronouncement of who God is, of who Jesus is. And he uses imagery like numbers and pictures, images that those who were familiar with their Old Testament, Jewish readers, would quickly see as a reference to another book in the Bible. For example, when we hear in verse Four and five, who is and who was and who is to come, the hearers would have quickly brought themselves back to Exodus chapter three. And when they hear the word of the Lord speaking, when God says, I am who I am, you hear the echoes in the gospel of John now? And so he's telling us that this God revealed to us is God the Father. Or when he uses the number seven to talk about the seven spirits, right here in these first few verses, the hearers would have remembered the completeness and holiness that that number represents in Exodus and Ezekiel and Daniel. And in particular, the seven spirits, their, their ears would have perked up and gone right back to Isaiah chapter 11. Verses 1 and 2 where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven attributes of the spirit. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we're introduced in this Trinitarian pronouncement that God is three in one to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Why does he go father, spirit, son? Because he's about to talk about the son. Co-equals, but one God. And so right away, right away, we find out that Christ is present in this letter. It turns out Luther was wrong. This is about the one true God. And this one true God speaking to seven churches, 
Seven churches, who two of whom were complacent and criticized deeply, two of whom, or three of whom were having trouble with assimilation, assimilating to the culture around, and only two of them got praises, but in their praises they were told they were going to be suffering. These are the churches, these messy churches that Jesus comes in the book of Revelation to reveal himself to. And he comes to us today and reveals himself likewise. And so we encounter a book that points us back to the Old Testament. We encounter a book that points us to Jesus. Eight years later, Martin Luther maybe had a a little bit of second thoughts after writing what I just shared with you in 1522. He wrote this, maybe begrudgingly. I'm putting the tone of voice in it when I read this quote to you, okay? As we see here in this book, that through and beyond, I guess, all the plagues and beasts and evil angels, Christ is nonetheless with his saints. And wins the final victory. Christ is present. In Revelation, we encounter, as we keep reading, just in these first few verses, the truth that Christ is for us. Christ is with us. The one who died on the cross and rose from the dead is the revelation of God to us. And we encounter the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, as he's called in Daniel, which these verses are quoting from, that he is God Almighty. And this God This Jesus, in whatever mess you're in, whatever difficulty, whatever challenge you're in, he will not leave us or forsake us. He is for you and with you. Now, in reading the book of Revelation, I I need to note that almost every scholar, when, when coming to the text in their introduction, will, instead of telling you uh, what is going on in chapter one. I, I don't, uh, I, well, I know why this is. They begin in their introductions always telling you how they're going to interpret chapter 20. And in chapter 20, we learn about, in these 10 verses, about a thousand year reign of Christ. Millennial. And they tell us how they're going to interpret it because there are those who believe that uh, what's called being a premillennialist, that Christ will return, his second coming will happen before that reign, and his saints will, who have gone ahead will rise from the dead. And during this thousand-year reign, before uh, the new heaven and the new earth are fully uh, restored to their glory, he will be present among us. Those are premillennialists. Simply stated, that is. And then there are those who are post-millennialists, that Christ will be raised from the dead uh, after this thousand-year reign. 
And then there are amillennials that Christ's reign began at the first resurrection when he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday that we just celebrated. And then our first record, uh, that first re- uh, resurrection begins and that we are participating in it when we are baptized into Christ. And it's a long era of witnessing and suffering. Now these three root. Uh, these three views of, of, of Revelation 20 are all part of the orthodox tradition of the Christian faith. All have been orthodox even among faithful uh, Lutheran expressions of the faith. And we've seen all three represented. But the key for us today, and I'll, I'll talk more about that chapter as we go along through this series. But the key is what we hear in these first eight verses is that Christ will reign. And he reigns. And it may at some times feel like when you're reading the book of Revelation, you're landing in a foreign country. And there's, you realize quickly Uh, A lot you don't know. And it feels uh, confusing. But one thing you are certain of, you are not in control. Someone else is. And as we hear in chapters 4 in particular through 22, we need to remember what we hear in chapter 1 today and what we hear in chapter 22 and what we'll hear throughout is that we might at some point uh, not understand a, a symbol or a number, a number as they're represented in taking us back to what it means in God's word. But what you need to remember is that Christ, even in our confusion, is reigning. And what he's unveiling is in the mystery of his word today is that He is the one true God. And so he says to those seven churches to remain in him. To be faithful and not compromising. And in the messiness of these churches, he says to us, and he says to us in the church today in 2023, remain in him. Don't compromise. Don't assimilate. But remain faithful. Even in the messy parts, Christ was present. As you read in verses 11, 12, and 13, if you read ahead in chapter 1, you'll discover there's an image of uh, lampstands. And you'll discover in the midst of that uh, is the voice of Jesus standing among them. And one scholar pointed out what's be- one of the beautiful things about that is even though these seven churches, particularly five of them, were particularly imperfect, they were particularly messy, Christ was still present among them and calling them back to himself. I mean... 
these areas that we'll hear in this book about compromise, compromising the word of God. You can't watch a a video or read an article without someone trying to sell you on their worldview today. And we must remember as Joshua did, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And when we don't, when we have compromised, then we need to come to the one who we hear in the book of Revelation today that says who's come to love us and free us from our sins by his blood. We need to remember and repent. But then he also invites us in this letter, this revelation, to worship him, to come together as a community. He leads us to do this together. As we hear the beatitude right there in verse three today, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and keep what is written for the time is near. We will be blessed when we gather together around and under his word with one another. At the beginning and the end of this prophecy, this blessing is spoken. You'll hear that same blessing repeated in the last chapter of the book. We are called to come together. We don't become a car by parking in a garage, but when we come to worship, doesn't automatically make us believers but in the hearing of the word as we hear from the scriptures the working of the holy spirit hearts are changed and so we're called to gather together this book draws us into worship in the community with each other how are you in community with others did you know that in our hymnal that's in our seats in front of you 78 of our hymns have reference to the book of revelation 78 We are drawn together. Let's gather together in worship, in Bible study, in fellowship. Find ways. Take your bulletin home. Look on the website. Let us be drawn together as Christ does here. And then he gives us a calling. Not only compromise to be in community, but also a calling to share this good news to be ready to share it. And like John, who shared the message he received, that's all we're called to do, is share what we've received. This Jesus doesn't leave us when it gets messy. He is standing in those lampstands. He's the Alpha and Omega That's the first letter and the last in the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and the end. His death and resurrection have been unveiled. And so now he calls you, he calls me to repent and remain in him and not compromise the true word of God. To be in community, to be in worship together and to be in study of his word together and in fellowship with one another. And he's calling the church to let this unveiling begin in our lives so that we can reveal it to the world around us. This one who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty ancient of days, this Jesus, 
This is who's calling us. This is who's being revealed. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Let his beginning and end be ours. In Christ's name, amen.